Our world is surrounded by stories, by narratives. Stories that tell us who we are. Stories that tell us what's right and wrong. Stories that start to become our identity. Narrative therapy describes these stories as being created by language and a societal or maybe even a collection of interaction, a collection of ideas that are shared. Narrative therapy sees some people as being honored by their identity and by the stories, but that's not the case for everyone. Some people are placed in bondage, slavery, by the labels put onto them by others. And that's what we're going to talk about this week on Isolated But Not Alone. Narrative therapy, the last big theory that's going to be discussed under the umbrella of solution-oriented theories. So stay tuned. Hi, this is James Raines, and you're listening to Isolated But Not Alone, a podcast that seeks to bring mental health awareness to rural and isolated communities. I just wanted to take this time to let you know that this and other content produced by James Raines is not therapy and is not intended to be therapy or to replace therapy. Nothing in this podcast indicates or creates a therapeutic relationship. Please consult with your therapist or seek one in your area if you are experiencing any type of mental health symptoms. Nothing in this podcast should be construed as specific life advice, and it is simply for the purpose of education. Welcome back to Isolated But Not Alone. Thank you for tuning in and listening to these podcasts. We're back from our bonus material, and if you haven't heard it yet, I did a podcast that introduces the idea of the dark side of mental health agencies. And in that podcast, I'm going to describe the experience that I had and the experience that the community is currently having with a mental health agency that has closed um, its offices in three separate counties, leaving the community and folks in those communities without direct access um, to mental health care. So if you have not heard that podcast, I ask that you um, listen into that. It's going to be some excellent stuff. And as I develop this idea more, I'm also going to talk about some of my experiences with what what I have labeled as the dark side of mental health. And it's going to be kind of interesting because today we're going to talk a lot about labels and a lot about identity and narrative um, stories. We're going to talk a lot about the stories that inform or the narratives that inform ourselves about what we believe about ourselves and about others and how we kind of see the world. And I call it the dark side of mental health because there truly is a side to mental health agencies that few folks know about unless they have worked at them that can be pretty, I use the word dark, but pretty disconnected. I'll use that word, disconnected from people's ideas of what a mental health agency is. And I think some of that comes in from the ideology of mental health therapists meet needs within their communities and help by being available to sit with folks in some of the hardest parts of their lives 
to help coach them and mentor them and guide them to empower them to make decisions that heal them or heal their situation or heal how they think or perceive a situation. Mental health practitioners, professionals are very much modern day healers. I like to use that word. I like to see mental health people as as healers. And what's interesting is because they, they have this role and they provide these services, oftentimes that is the community's first impression, first view, first understanding, first representation of the mental health agency in which they provide. So oftentimes they don't get to see kind of behind the curtain. And I remember my first big experience working for a mental health agency. And I've often in my head associated it with the Wizard of Oz. And maybe you've seen the Wizard of Oz, maybe you haven't. Uh, The gist of the Wizard of Oz is this uh, young woman is swept up and brought to a magical land where there's this great and powerful Oz and this wicked witch. And what's interesting is, as the story plays out, you realize this great and powerful Oz is just a, a tiny little man hiding behind the facade of power. You know, kind of pulling the strings of power to give people the impression of power, but really doesn't have any power and needs the help of this young woman to rescue the land. And that's how I saw these mental health agencies behind the scenes. It was kind of like getting a glimpse behind the curtain and realizing that what's going on there isn't necessarily something that filled me with confidence that things were being done well, right? And that actually being a mental health agency in some ways can be kind of an icky job. You know, that it's a business, that it has responsibilities, it has overhead, it has to pay its employees. I mean, there's all kinds of things, whether they're nonprofit or for-profit, that a mental agency has to do on a regular basis that does not seem to connect with the services that they are providing. So if you haven't listened to that podcast, I ask that you tune into it. Uh, It's listed as bonus material on my site. There's going to be several of them as I go through um, the process of describing my truth, my story in some of these situations with the more darker side of mental health. But today we're going to zoom back in on narrative therapy. And I remember being in school, I always found that narrative therapy was really cool. That's hip, cool, hip. And that's how I saw it. It was a cool, hip therapy. You know, I if something on a level kind of connected with me. I think it was because I'm a published author and the thought of storytelling is very powerful to me. And I feel that oftentimes I have connected with and related to others through storytelling. And so the fact that this entire therapy kind of rests on narration and narratives about ourselves I think kind of attracted me to it. Now, with that being said, I find myself practicing a different type of therapy. So maybe that says I'm not hip and not cool. I don't know. Or, or maybe it says there's some there's something about it that conflicts with maybe another core value that I have in reference to the therapy I do practice that we're going to talk about in a later podcast. 
But narrative therapy is, is pretty simplistic in a way and yet complex. And what I mean by that, in school studying it, the concepts were pretty easy to grasp. I don't want to say they were simple, but of all the systems I had studied, they were pretty easy to take in pretty quickly, if that makes sense. I was able to understand them fast. However, it's a very complex therapy system, which almost seems contrary to how simple it was to pick up some of the main concepts. And what I mean by that is the practice of this therapy is very complex. It's very, there's a lot of depth to it. But the concepts are pretty simple to understand. And to me, that's kind of brilliant. Uh, Michael White, David Epstein were kind of the big names associated with this theory. And I have to hand it to him. It's, it's very brilliant. It's a very brilliant system. And that's me putting a label on it. Using language that some people know and some people won't. What it means to be brilliant. Right? To shine. To sparkle. But narrative therapy is called that because these theorists believe that lives and identities are created by the stories that people tell themselves or are told by others. When I think of being told by others, I think of like Hollywood. I went to a very strict seminary as a bias of mine because for a long time I've had to fight what I would call indoctrination of more legalistic type thought processes. And so one of the things that this seminary taught was that Hollywood was pretty, what word do I want to use to ascribe Hollywood? Hmm. Hollywood was against me. It was against my family. It sought to use entertainment and musings to somehow enslave and captivate me to keep me from doing whatever I was meant to do. And it's hard to get rid of that thinking because in a sense, what Hollywood produces is art. And art is always up for interpretation and has an original message and needs to interact with us versus shutting down our minds. So often when we watch art and we participate in art, we kind of shut down the thinking part of our brain, the emotional part of our brain, and it becomes amusement. What it means is we're kind of like deer in the headlight. We're just shutting everything down and just letting the eye, just letting everything come in. We're just letting it all come in, right? And art is never meant to be experienced that way. Art is meant to be experienced with the senses, to be connected with. And so being taught this kind of way legalistic way of looking at art that, you know, having this bias against Hollywood and everything they're producing. You know, I often think about what like, we're talking about stories that are told by other people. I often think of Hollywood because Hollywood does tell stories of other people. It tells collective stories of society, often in very creative ways in order to connect with its audience. And with that, Sometimes there's stories in their narratives that go into that, that go against people's views or narratives that are within the society in which they live. And I'm trying to think of many examples of this, and, and, and there are lots of them, but I'm trying to think of like the best example of what I mean by this. 
And I think one that comes to mind most regularly, like kind of right off the bat, forefront of my mind, is The Simpsons. How many folks have sat down and watched The Simpsons over 20, 30 years? I know they've been on for a very long time. I remember first tuning into them when I was a little kid on a black and white television that had a turn dial and a channel called You, the letter, right? And in that, I always find that show extremely tragic. In fact, I can't even watch it. And I haven't watched it since I was a young person. And this is why, because I grew up in an abusive home with a parent, a male parent, who was addicted to narcotics and to other things. And every time I watch it, I see my dad portrayed by the character of Homer Simpson, a person who seems to be in every episode the blunt of the joke, the worst possible example of a father figure. Someone who is always seeking to do something average and seems to meet with utter disaster and is constantly made a fool of. Now, I don't necessarily even know if that's what the the authors of that show, the writers, the producers, all the people who are involved in that show meant to have happen because I can't even tune in and haven't been able to tune into that show or to even read about it because every time I see Homer Simpson, I am filled with a deep well of grief. Every time I see it, it's like I dig into that pool of grief that exists about my father and my view of him as a child, even then struggling, because his addiction quite often made him do horrible things to the family or make really horrible decisions that harmed himself and other people. And I knew that deep down in his heart, when he was sober from the narcotics, from the drugs, and from the alcohol, that he truly loved me and wanted to be a good dad. And yet always, more often than not, was Homer Simpson. And so that show, even though when I was going to that really strict seminary, that's the show they always bashed on about how it destroys family values because, you know, it destroys the father figure, you know. And But I didn't see it quite like that. I saw it as this was somebody who knew what I was experiencing in my childhood, and it was extremely tragic. And to this day, I I can't even watch the show. But that's an example of what I get is that show has been around for a long time, and it's been narrating to us stories of society, often in a humorous way, of how the world is interacting in our society, societal messages, things of that nature. So when I was in school... We watched a really good TED Talk in reference to a young woman who built their self-image upon what the magazines were telling them that they needed to do, how they needed to be, how they needed to act. And that kind of also ties into this stories that are told to us by others. And then to follow kind of the transgenerational theories we talked about before, There's also the things that are passed on, the stories, the narratives that are passed on to us from the past generation. And so problems, solution, identities, these are all created by language and how society interacts with each other. And as I said at the beginning, some people are honored by this. And that's every society are those who are 
honored by the language and the terms and the position in which they hold. And there are folks on the opposite side that are put into bondage because of labels placed upon them. And one glaring example of this that I think of is, and this is an extreme example because I've said in previous podcasts, oftentimes we can see clearly in the extremes, is the Jews during Holocaust. So one of the very first big steps was to label the Jews so that people knew they were Jewish. And I'm not going to go too far into that and discuss all what that means and what that meant, because at this point, I think in society, it's kind of common knowledge. But they were labeled, and that label put them in bondage. It robbed them of their dignity, and eventually, for some, it robbed them of their lives. But what's even more pervasive with these stories that we tell ourselves and what other people tell us as well as society tells us is that sometimes these things can convince others that they themselves are the problem and their life can be so defined by how they see the problem that you cannot distinguish them from the problem. And when I think about that, I really think about the world of addiction. It's hard sometimes to distinguish the problem of addiction from the addict. Even the language from some of the older systems used to help people overcome addiction labels addiction and addicts. When I think of that, I think of the kind of the old school thought. And I, I was healed by this more old school system. So I still utilize it myself personally. And I have often found myself in other arenas upsetting and even maybe even offending folks because I refer to myself as an addict. And for folks who don't come from that older system, they can sometimes see that as me connecting and making the problem part of who I am. And this system seeks to do the opposite of that. It seeks to say the problem is the problem. So I am not an addict. I am a person. I am a human being who struggles with addiction. With the hope of breaking those two things apart. So that my identity is not in my addiction. Which can then cause me to continue in my addiction. And so that's one of the, the prime examples I think of. But I also think of other examples, going back to my, to my father, is that my father, in his addiction, often had explosive anger that was uncontrolled because he did not have, at the time, the, the right mental state in which to control his actions, whether he was intoxicated to the point of blackout or if he was on some type of mind-altering substance. And so often with this explosive anger, there were harsh physical consequences that occurred. And so because of that, as a young person, my father and his anger were one. Anger and my father, addiction and my father were all one. My mind could not distinguish the two. So in a sense, my father's problem had become his identity to others in his family. And anything that occurred in the day-to-day -day that seemed to go against that was minimized or tossed out by me in my mind. And that's an important concept of narrative therapy to think about. 
And we've all had those experiences where we see somebody as all of something or none of something. Because after I got healing in my own life, I started to think back on my father. And I remember times if I really thought hard, because up until that point, everything I thought about my father was negative, was harmful, was hurtful. That he never really loved me. They never really cared about me. How could he? He was addicted to a substance. And oftentimes I felt like the substance was more important than me. And that oftentimes I was the blunt of all the problems in his life. Because that was my experience. That it was my fault, whether it was my fault or not. And so... At first, I remember going through, you know, outpatient treatment and thinking, you know, what, how can I detach from this? Like nothing I think about my dad is positive or good. I remember somebody saying to me, well, that can't be possible. Nobody is 100% evil all the time. Even the most hardened people that would be labeled as evil can have moments of goodness and heart and emotion. And I remember thinking through that, and that's an extreme. Was there times in my life where my father did opposite, did something that was different than that? And I remember there were times when he did. I can think of a time when I was a little boy that he picked me up and a surprise from, I was either in preschool or some type of day school or something, and took me to Florida to the beach, just me and him, and how much fun and excitement. That's such, but I had forgotten that memory. I had completely forgotten that. And as I started to think, more and more examples came up of in those moments where he tried to do good, where he tried to show me loving, tenderness, kindness, and tried to be that father figure that this young boy needed. And there was more examples than I could have ever imagined that I hadn't even remembered. For years, I didn't think anything about. And they were in direct opposition to my pattern of thinking which was my dad was all this and not this. So this theory kind of defines health as what most people believe in. A dysfunction is kind of what people don't like, or at least what society says is dysfunction. Narrative therapists would not like the diagnostic manual. They do not like marginalizing or labeling or objectifying anybody. So they would not like this document. They would be very person-centered. They would value life. They would value respect. They would not necessarily value judgment, though judgment does occur in the sense that people often are confronted with judgment and have to sometimes make judgments about their own behaviors and actions. And kind of how this theory would see kind of one of its key ideas is co-authoring. So the The therapist and the client kind of co-author a different narrative, a more preferred narrative. And they focus on externalizing the problem to create change. So changing that thought pattern from, for example, I'm an addict to I struggle with addiction. Or I'm angry to I struggle with anger. And then in the end, the client creates or constructs their own preferred story their own narrative that fits with their beliefs and their values. So that's narrative therapy kind of in a nutshell. And like I said, it's one of those therapies that some of the concepts are pretty simple to understand, but the complexity of the interventions and how the therapist sits in the space with the client to help them create preferred stories and to externalize their problems 
is quite complex. So again, thanks for taking your time to listen to this podcast. And if you like this content, please share it, like it, do whatever it is people do with these type of podcasts. Thanks for listening. And I hope you enjoyed this podcast enough to share it with friends and family and reach out with any questions you might have about mental health. And we will do our best in future shows to answer those questions. And remember, it might feel like you're isolated and maybe you are, but you're not alone.